Will you pray with me? God, be with us in our thinking and doing, in our speaking, and in our very being. Amen. You might be surprised that I was actually interested in preaching on Jesus' ascension. It's one of those narratives that's kind of awkward. It doesn't fit easily into our contemporary modes of meaning-making. I mean, Jesus disappearing into the sky is fairly outrageous and reads to us like a work of science fiction. But it seemed like it could be an interesting puzzle. Um, and I do have a love for sci-fi and novels and TV. We can find the story of Jesus' ascension at a couple points of the New Testament, as well as references to it. On the one hand, the story plays practical roles. It leads us right into the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. In other words, Jesus is gone now, so the Holy Spirit, or the other part of our three-in-one God, can join us. But there's more we can find here. Today, we've read the two most descriptive versions of Jesus' ascension, one that happens at the end of Luke and the other at the beginning of Acts. This makes a kind of transition between the story of Jesus' life and the story of the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church. Interestingly, these stories don't exactly match up, even though they were most likely written by the same person. Perhaps this indicates to us that exact historical fact as we understand history today is not necessarily the point of the writer. So let's immerse ourselves in the world of this text and see what we can find. While the idea of ascension might be odd to us, it was actually something that became common in the Roman Empire for rulers and played a part in Jewish religious history. In the Roman world, ascension was one of the points where the religious and political cults met. Over time, the rulers of the Roman Empire were seen more and more in religious terms. Just before the time of Jesus' life, during the reign of Caesar Augustus, the Roman imperial cult began to form. At their death, and with the approval of a Senate vote, Roman emperors could ascend to become gods. So in this era, many Roman emperors were lifted up and declared divine. Most specifically, Caesar Augustus reigned from before Jesus' life and died when we might have expected Jesus to be in his teen years. Augustus had built and expanded the empire through conquest and military domination. And this era of the Roman Empire was given the name, or given the term Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Augustus' reign helped to begin the tradition of the Roman imperial cult and the ascent of rulers to become divine. His rule was just so awe-inspiring that the lines between God and man blurred. This Pax Romana of the Roman Empire in some ways allowed a huge amount of stability through a vast empire and gave some cultural and religious freedom to the conquered peoples. But this came at the price of colonial control and assimilation into the values of the empire. Rome dominated with its military might and justified this control through the idea of benefaction. In other words, their control benefited everyone by main maintaining a kind of order and justice. 
They then rationalize this imperial power by noting the inferiority of all the people groups that Augustus conquered. The empire explained its need to maintain peace through violence with what we might call a kind of racial and gendered superiority. Any of this sound comparable to today's colonial practices? Augustus, along with the other emperors, claimed both political and divine rule over this empire, and he was ascended to divinity after his death. If we enter this world, we begin to feel the disciples' pain as the subjugated Hebrew people in diaspora, a people group spread out across the Roman Empire. As long as they fit into the system as a marginal people under the empire and recognize their own subordination, they could live out their lives until the Roman order conflicted with their religious beliefs and they might need to make some hard choices between survival and morality. We can also feel their hopes that there is something more to hope for, that Jesus is their salvation, the one who will overturn Roman control and give them back their nation. At this point in the story, Jesus' resurrection had proved that Rome doesn't have the final say over their bodies, right? Jesus, in the body of an oppressed Jewish man, vanquished death at the hands of the empire. So they asked Jesus, has the time come, Rabbi? Are you going to restore sovereignty to Israel? Now, <clears throat> Jesus has spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom of God that is coming. At this point, you might think that the disciples would get it a little bit more, but it turns out they're still confused. Jesus has already taught them about power, saying in Luke 22, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Yet they still want a nation and think within the framework of imperial power and survival of their own people. Their goal seems to be the political reinstatement of Israel as its own nation. But Jesus seems to have something else in mind. So here we are with these disciples, not quite getting it, as Jesus ascends into the clouds. For us, the story is complicated. With, within a modernist scientific perspective, the story seems impossible. People don't just disappear into clouds, uh, not to mention after coming, coming alive after being dead. From the disciples' perspective, in historical Jewish cosmology, there were three realms. Below us is the underworld. The living exist in our realm on the earth, and above us is heaven. In this worldview, Jesus going up to heaven makes some bits of sense, uh, but we know scientifically there is no heavenly realm just above us or in the clouds. So, so what could this be talking about? Since my dad was a physics teacher, I needed to check into the possibilities here. So I did read something from a physicist and theologian, Mark Harris. Harris. He says that we will, we will only find uh, Jesus' ascension a problem if we limit ourselves to uh, Newtonian or common sense science. These are the sort of material laws we can observe. For instance, a body at rest will stay at rest. 
unless acted on by an outside force. But if we incorporate more contemporary relativistic physics where, as they say, truth is actually stranger than fiction, there are plenty of ways to explain this. These include theories of hyperspace in the multiverse hypothesis. So Jesus is whisked away into the multiverse. Harris goes on to say, though, that if we try to explain these things scientifically, even if we can find some interesting possible explanations, we might be missing important elements of the story. We might be missing some of the meaning-making. If Jesus disappears into the multiverse, the event is so literal that we don't have anything to learn from it. So the question remains for both us and the disciples. What, what could God be trying to show us here? This is where one of my seminary professors, Drew Strait, can help us out. He explores how a person like Luke might express ideas in the context of an empire like Rome. So here's the hypothetical situation. If you lived in a dictatorship and wanted to critique the dictator, how would you do it? Well, you probably wouldn't speak or write anything directly against the dictator because otherwise you'd be dead pretty quick. Um, or in our setting today, if you wanted to help trans kids in, say, Florida, would you be publicly broadcasting your services? Yeah, that's, that's a hard reality. Here in Portland, these things seem far away, but having lived in some states like this, the oppression of some laws being passed around race and gender feel very real and scary to me. And there are plenty more examples. Like if you were a school librarian in Texas who wanted to help children understand the racialized history of the US, you probably wouldn't be broadcasting all those banned books that were in your library on these themes. In these cases, it's more likely you might work under the radar through hidden networks and signs. More and more, people like my professor are noticing the ways that, books, that the books of Luke and Acts confront the empire, the empire in a hidden way, and how the texts highlight the radically different way of Jesus as a contrast to the empire, preaching the upside-down kingdom of God. This ascension story does, definitely has some potential for this. In the case of Jesus' disciples, there was a long history of shared literature, ideas, and stories to draw from. For hundreds of years before Jesus, the Hebrew people had responded to empire in the many stories we find in the Bible. We can check out some of their references to Jewish scriptures, or hyperlinks, as David Holcomb has called them in our Bible study classes. In the Old Testament, most notably, Elijah and Enoch ascended to heaven to be with God without ever having an earthly death. For these figures, ascension signified God's approval and their holiness. In the Luke passage, Jesus even refers to himself as a fulfillment of the law of Moses and the Hebrew prophets like Elijah. Moses was seen as a figure of liberation from the oppression of Egypt. The cloud in the Acts passage may point us toward the stories of Moses encountering God's presence in a cloud. And the prophet Elijah 
speaks of the restoration of Israel. These are some strong allusions to biblical figures who spoke, against, spoke out against the tyranny and oppression of rulers and who found favor with the one and only God. Additionally, survival and the future of their people group is another element that these Jews in diaspora scattered across the empire struggled with. Willie James Jennings is a theologian who has looked critically at the ways that racism and colonialism have poisoned the Christian imagination today. He writes about Acts, that in Acts we find faith caught between diaspora and empire, faith caught between survival and empire. Faith is always caught between diaspora and empire. It is always caught between those on the one side focused on survival and fixated on securing a future for their people, and on the other side, those intoxicated with the power and possibilities of empire. Caught between diaspora and empire. Caught between trying to survive and the impulse to join the domination of the empire. So these disciples are continuing to question Jesus and struggle to see what goes beyond the extremes of group survival and imperial power. We, like the disciples, are also caught so many times between the survival of our own groups and the dominating power of the empire. In many different groups that we have in our life, for instance, I wonder, Will the group of Mennonite believers that I grew up with and love dearly, a community of faith that has spread out across the country and MCUSA churches, survive the decline of progressive churches in the US? Or on the other hand, maybe Mennonites have become so assimilated into American culture that religion isn't actually meaningful for them anymore. There are also clearly parallels in this story to the ascension of Roman rulers. While the stories of Luke Acts do not directly confront the Roman imperial cult, this story gives us a picture of where early Christians stood. As I described earlier, the Roman worldview was lifting emperors up to the status of gods. In saying that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, this story is deliberately undermining the values of the Roman Empire. The text uses the language of imperial propaganda to assert that Jesus Christ is the only Lord, the Lord over everything, even Caesar Augustus Roman Empire. Jesus, who nonviolently broke the powers of death and violence and has now ascended to be with God, the only God that should ever have our worship. This Jesus teaches us a new way of doing community, a way of community that resists the values of empire, a way of community that doesn't rely on violent domination and social hierarchies or hold us in the fear of group survival that crosses the boundaries of what it means to be Jew or Greek, oppressed or free, male, female, or anywhere on the gender spectrum. This community of Christ does not ask us to assimilate our differences like the empire or to fear difference, but to join in the whole Pentecost spectrum of diversity held together as the body of Christ. So for us, when we come together, 
every Sunday to proclaim Jesus as Lord, we are saying that Jesus' way is greater than the destructive forces like racism, patriarchy, and income inequality that hold up our present-day empire. And we are finding a new way forward. We live in human communities that are teaching us both implicitly and explicitly that domination, violence, assimilation, and hierarchy are what make order out of chaos that bring peace. And by learning how to survive in these systems, we assimilate these values in ways that we are not always conscious of. But I think we all know somehow deep inside that the order of the empire does not make us whole or allow us real joy. Even countless sci-fi series have narrated the undersides of empire for us. Star Wars would be the most widely known. The harder thing is finding out what it means to actually live differently, to liberate ourselves from these destructive influences. <clears throat> what we can learn from these passages is that finding Jesus' way in all this mess will be challenging. But there are a few things I notice that can help us begin this journey. These ascension stories give us a few pointers, that we listen to Jesus, that we lean in to joy, that we embrace the unknown, and that we wait for the Holy Spirit to reform our imaginations. This is going to be kind of messy, as we see in the rest of the book of Acts. First, listening to Jesus might seem tricky, because in this story, Jesus has left us, ascended to be with God. But it is now that the light that was in one place at one time is now in all places at all times. Jesus has left us as a specific person in space-time to become alive in the text that we read, in our experiences, and in the church. Through the rhetoric of these stories, we are in constant dialogue with Jesus. As we come together in dialogue around the meaning of these stories in our thoughts, feelings, practices, we are constantly learning about Jesus and becoming the body of Christ. I've seen PMC becoming the body of Christ in our Anabaptist Bible Project groups and Peaceful Practices class, when we read the Bible together in small groups and think about what Jesus might be calling us to. I've seen PMC becoming the body of Christ when we work together for Family Promise to host families in our community who need housing. I've seen PMC becoming the body of Christ when I hear stories of the ways that our Stephen ministers have provided empathy, care, and witness for those who are struggling. And when we chip away at the long journey of undoing our internalized racism, patriarchy, and classism, we are holding together the body of Christ, learning how to see and value difference instead of assimilating, destroying, or dominating. <clears throat> Leaning into joy may also be tricky in a world where so many things seem to be going catastrophically backward. But joy is the way that we experience and share the kingdom of God here and now. The end of Luke says that the disciples experience great joy and blessing. I see this joyful body of Christ in many ways at PMC, in our bird game nights, and laughter at retreat, 
in the beauty of quilts and the community that makes them, in joining together for potlucks and dine with nine meals, in making all kinds of wonderful music together. Now, embracing the unknown and waiting for the Holy Spirit, as Lisa mentioned, this might be the hardest yet, but, and Jesus tells us, it's not for you to know the times and periods, and that to wait, that we should wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Ambiguity and waiting are not things that most humans are great at. This especially applies to me. <clears throat> Yet, I believe it's through the rituals of the church. Coming together on Sunday mornings and holidays, building friendships and caring for each other, embodying worship in song and prayer, that we give ourselves a deep grounding force, a rootedness in God, so that we can wait and hope in the middle of the unknown. Together, when we build up the body of Christ in all these ways, we proclaim Christ is alive and Christ is Lord. And this very Christ breaks the hold of the death-dealing and violent peace of the empire on our imaginations and in our world, bringing us a vision of peace that will turn the world upside down.